And we're turning to Genesis 12 first, and then we're going to flip over to 15. Uh, wonderful to, to kind of get a little sneak peek into the covenant made with Abraham through um, the baptism today, Trent and I worked that out. We talked and we thought today would be a great day to do the baptism uh, so we could start thinking about God's blessings uh, to Abraham. Even so, uh, I've decided about five minutes ago that there's too much here um, with the Abrahamic covenant, so we're going to do uh, two weeks with Abraham. If you're visiting, Uh, We've been working through the different covenantal administrations of grace that God enters into with his people. Uh, We looked at Noah last week, and Moses was going to be next. We're going to put him on pause, and we're going to look at Genesis 17 next week with the covenant um, sign of of circumcision. Um, There's just too much to unpack with Abraham, and hopefully we can do more even uh, after service. Everybody's invited to our Q&A after fellowship time. But we'll just get started with a few verses from chapter 12, and then we'll read chapter 15. This is the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the dead animal pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, 
the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. We're going to be back and forth between 12 and 15. Essentially, Genesis 12 is the content of the promise. Genesis 15 is God confirming that covenant promise. So these go uh, together. I just finished um, a book I had been reading for, for fun. I do read things uh, for fun, and that means fiction. Uh, if you ask our brother Cliff what he reads for fun, he reads the Puritans. He's where he belongs right now in seminary. Um, but I don't have much time for reading um, when I'm not reading for work, which would be the Puritans in my estimation. Um, and so usually it's just a few minutes at bedtime before I fall asleep, and I often wake up uh, with the, the book kind of you know on my chest or, or down on the floor, or, or Carrie will kind of give me an elbow to turn the light off because I've been asleep for an hour. So this means I work slowly through books. It also means that every time I pick the book up again, I don't really remember where I was last And so what happens a lot is I'll be reading in the book and realize I have no idea what's going on. I don't know who this character is. I don't know why we're all excited about what just happened. Oh, that's because I skipped a chapter or two chapters and I need to go back and read it again. There are certain things uh, as you read a story, there are certain parts that are just indispensable. You need it to understand what is coming forward in the narrative. That's Abraham. That's the chapter in redemptive history Dealing with Abraham, if we're going to understand the covenant of grace, if we're going to understand God's plan of redemption, it is the most important chapter. Such that if you skip it, if you miss it, when you get to the New Testament, it's not going to make as much sense as it otherwise could. Especially when you start reading the Apostle Paul, who goes back to Abram again and again. Theologian Robert Raymond said that God's call of and his promise to Abraham are the center point of redemptive history. The center point. So we're only here at at chapter 12 of Genesis, and yet we've already reached the center, the most important section. So without this chapter, without understanding this section of redemptive history, uh, we can't understand what's going on with the rest of the Bible, really, to put it quite frankly. So let's consider what God is teaching us about the covenant of grace as it unfolds with the Abrahamic covenant in particular. We're going to consider three things today. What God gives in this covenant, what God does in this covenant, and what God requires in this covenant. So first, what does God give? What's he giving in the covenant of grace? It can be summarized in two words. As we get to Abraham, God has distilled it down to two things. I'm giving a people and I'm giving a place. If we connect that back to Genesis 3.15 promise, which this is a further development of, what that means is God is saying, I'm sending the seed of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent in order to rescue, to, to save a multitude who will come into my designated location and live with me forever. God is saving a people to dwell with him in his holy place. Jerusalem the golden. We sang of it a moment ago. So first, people. God promised to Abraham back in chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation. He will make of Abraham or from Abraham such a big family that it's actually more accurate to call it a nation. And then even that is too meager a word as he shows Abraham in chapter 15 that a better way to think of this family is to think of the number of stars in the sky Can you, boys and girls, can you number how many stars there are in the sky? I can't. 
And Abraham couldn't either, and that's the point. And God says, so shall your offspring be. That's how many people will come from you. The point is that those who will benefit from God's covenant of grace compromise an innumerable multitude. Properly speaking, then, it's a covenant that will not be completely fulfilled until the vision that John has in Revelation comes to reality. You know the text, Revelation 7. He sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the fulfillment of what God promises in Genesis 12. That's the the great nation. That's the great people. This is... This is the proof that Abraham's name has been made great because all those people come from him. But at the start of chapter 15, Abraham's struggling to believe that, right? Because his wife is barren and he's really old. That's the problem that he's facing. And there's still no heir. There's still no baby being rocked to sleep in the cradle at at night. And God's reply to Abraham's doubts, which are understandable... You see in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me? That's the question. What does God give? He's giving a people. But but Abraham's saying, really? What are you going to give me? Because right now I just got this Eliezer dude. And um, that's not really what you said. What will you give me? And God's reply, in essence, is to tell Abraham, you need to widen your scope. You need to look to the heavens. Look to the heavens. God says, Abraham, you're worried about... About one child. When I've promised you an entire nation. Nations even. Peoples. I've promised you a global influence. But we need to widen our scope as well. Don't we? The covenant of grace teaches us that God's promises are so big. That by definition they are better than we could ever imagine. Did you hear that? The covenant of grace teaches us. That God's promises, by definition, are so big, they defy our wildest dreams and imagination. So how often we get hung up on little things that seem to go wrong. We get fixated on, on minor things that don't go our way. When God is trying to get us to look up to the heavens, to take in his glory, his grandeur, his majesty. You're worried about this little thing, but, but take... Take into account who I am and what I'm capable of doing. There are no trials or setbacks in this life or in this world, no matter how major they might seem, that can keep us from getting something that is meant for the next life and the next world in the first place. Nothing in this life or in this world can keep us from getting that which can only be fulfilled in the next life, the next world. And that's underscored by the second promise. First a people, then a place. Well, the covenant of grace was God rescuing a people, bringing them to dwell with him forever. Just as he was meant to dwell in Eden with Adam and Eve and their children before Satan asserted his wicked influence. And so as that covenant unfolds, we find God promised that Abraham would inherit a land where he and his descendants could dwell with God. Verse 7 of chapter 15. He said, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. Well, in the most immediate context, what what land is God talking about? Talking about the land of Canaan, 
Talking about the, the, the Middle East, what we know as the Middle East. But think about this for a moment. A nation that has as many citizens as stars in the sky, could that nation ever actually inhabit a strip of land that, that's about 150 miles long and 50 miles wide? Of course not. So we have to take these promises together, what God's giving together. If he's really going to give that people, well, then this place, it's got to be more than just this strip of land. Paul understood it correctly when he calls Abraham the heir of the world, Romans 4. That's what you're going to get, actually. That's what it's pointing to, the entire world. And so, again, we must widen our scope. We look to the heavens if we want to understand what God's doing and what his promises, how his promises are fulfilled, not in this world, but the next. And Abraham, he knew that. Hebrews tells us that. If you want, you can turn with me. Hebrews 11, where we're told this. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, very instructive for us. It tells us there that Abraham was looking forward to the city not Jerusalem, not Canaan, not that land, but the city that has foundations who des- whose designer and builder is God. That's where he was always looking by faith. Abraham got that if, if what God was saying about this people was really true, well, then the land needed to be a lot bigger. And then he goes on, or we go on in Hebrews 11. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then we're told that his descendants did the same thing. Verse 16, but as it is they, Abraham and his descendants, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They desire a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. What kind of city? A heavenly city. God's promises are so big, this world can't contain them. And they will be fulfilled in the next. We're starting to learn this as the covenant of grace unfolds with Abraham. This is what God is giving. He's giving a massive multitude the blessing of life in the heavenly places with him forevermore. That's what God gives Secondly, what does God do to prove it? We, we see what God does to ensure this promise is given. Because Abraham hears the amazing promise and, and he asks a question back in chapter 15. How can I know? The first question is, what will you give me? Well, we see what God will give him. And then the second question is, how can I know that you're going to give it to me? Some people think that this is rude on, on Abram's part. Um, but God does not chastise him for asking the question. Uh, He believes, he's basically saying, Lord, help my my unbelief. This is faith-seeking understanding. And so what does God do? God ratifies the covenant promise with a covenant ritual, uh, a covenant ceremony. We could say it like this. To underscore the promise, he swears an oath. So it's as though Abram asks, how can I know? And God says, because I'm swearing to it. We do that in, in conversation, right? We, we kind of up that ante of, of, of veracity. When we say something and people don't believe, we say, no, no, I swear it. I swear. I mean it. 
We do that far too often. We often do it flippantly. We don't really consider what we're swearing to. Actually, a lot of times, if we're being honest, we do that when we want to trick somebody, right? Uh, you know, we we're, uh, want to play you know, a prank on someone, and they're kind of suspicious, and they say, are you really? Is this really what? No, I swear it. I swear it. But really, what we mean is, I'm lying to you. I just really don't want you to think I'm lying to you, right? And yet, swearing is a very serious thing. And so when God does it, we should pay attention. That's what he does in Genesis 15. He made a promise in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 15, he underscores it by saying, No, I swear. Takes an oath. He binds himself by swearing a covenant oath. He does it verbally, of course. We see that in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain. I really mean it. I swear. So he does it verbally. But our focus is actually on what happens visually. There's something that happens visually. Abraham has a vision of God. God is represented there in verse 17 as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passes between these animal carcasses that Abraham cut in half and he sets the halves facing each other. So there's all this blood and entrails that kind of make this a little aisle and that the, the, the pot and the flaming torch pass through them. That makes perfect sense. We see this all the time, right? No. What is going on here, right? That's the question. What, what is taking place here? This is very strange. Well, we're helped if we understand in the ancient world how covenants were made. Two parties entered into a covenant. Just, you know, Joe Schmo and Jim Schmo just go and they want to make a covenant together. This is what they would do. They would take an animal, cut it in half, so there's blood everywhere, and both parties would walk between the dead animal pieces. And it was a way of saying, just as this animal has died, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I'll be like this animal. It was a really serious oath. The word is self-malediction or a self-maledictory oath. So benediction, good word. Malediction, bad word. Here, they're taking a bad word upon themselves. I'm swearing that if I don't keep the promise, I should be killed. Just like that animal. That, that's what's taking place in a covenant uh, ceremony in those days. It's a promise made in blood. Which is interesting because then you understand that when, if you're reading Hebrew, any time that you come across the phrase that we read as translated made a covenant or make a covenant, it's actually literally translated cut a covenant. God cut a covenant with Abraham because cutting an animal was, was a, a, an integral component of these ceremonies. There had to be bloodshed. There had to be that self-maledictory oath. Well, this is what God does to confirm the covenant of grace. Notice, though, that he's the only one that walks through those animal pieces. He's represented by this, this pot and this torch. Abraham doesn't go between the pieces. Normally, Jim Schmo, Joe Schmo, right? They go together. They both walk because they both have an obligation to keep. Abraham doesn't have any obligation. That's why we call it the covenant of grace. God is bestowing it. It's unilateral. God will do it. He is taking fully on the risk of if that covenant is broken, I will die. Abraham's He's asleep. This is a vision he's having. This is a dream he's having. R.C. Sproul said this is his favorite story in the Old Testament because it underscores how, you know, people say, oh, the God of the New Testament is such a gracious God. The God of the Old Testament is such a meanie. He says, no, no, no. Look here. Abraham's fast asleep. He can't even do anything. And God is 
promising grace upon grace upon grace. He walks between the pieces alone. Should we be surprised? In Genesis 12, you could read it again, and I want you to count sometime. You'll see that there are seven I will statements there. I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse seven times. I will, I will, I will. It's all of God. After all, who could bring such amazing promises to fruition except God? So could it be any clearer that this is all of grace? And so this is what God does to underscore it for us. He swears an oath. God is saying to Abraham, you can know for certain that this is the blessing or that the blessings I've told you about will come to pass because I'm swearing. I solemnly commit myself as almighty God and death might even be necessary. But even so, the promise will be fulfilled. And friends, we know that these were not empty words on God's part. Because when God took that self-maledictory oath, when he walked between the death pieces, he was committing himself to that walk of death that we call Calvary. It is impossible to read Genesis 15 and to not think of Jesus. And to not think of the cross. That's what we're meant to think of. That's what we're meant to be pointed and, and directed towards. To see that God commits himself to death in the person of his son. The, the, the Trinity willingly uh, giving uh, the son for the life of sinners. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. And so at the cross, what happens? Jesus, his, his flesh is bruised and beaten and it is torn for us, just like the dead animals in Genesis 15. Isn't that interesting? In the covenant, you, you, you cut those animals in half and you say, I swear I will keep the promise and if not, I'll become like these animals. And here we have Christ, he comes and he keeps the covenant and he still becomes like those animals. Why? Because he would rather die than you or I. He would take death so that you and I don't have to. Even though he's the covenant keeper, he becomes the covenant curse bearer for us. Hebrews 9 15 through 17 is also instructive in this regard. It underscores that the death of Christ is what has brought the blessing of the covenant to fruition. In other words, Christ had to die. In Hebrews 9, if you're there, turn there, please. We need to turn there. Hebrews 9, 15 through 17 is really instructive here. It does something interesting. There's a play on words. In Greek, the word for covenant, diatheke, is the same word for a will or a testament, diatheke, same word. So what the author does in this section is he says the way that a covenant established is the same way that any will or testament is established by the death of the one making it. So look there at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So a death needs to occur. And now we read in verse 16, for where a will, same word as covenant, is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, it takes effect only at death. 
since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. We can think of it like this. If your great Aunt Edna has written you into her will and she says she'll leave you um, a million, a, a billion dollars when she dies. Oh, that we could all have an Aunt Edna, right? A billion dollars when you die. What has to happen for you to get that money? What do you have to do? Nothing. She just has to die. When she dies, it's yours, just like that. Hebrews is saying that's how gracious the covenant of grace really is. And that's how amazing the love of Christ really is. He died so that you could inherit all of the blessings of the covenant. It's as though he couldn't stay alive. The only way for us to receive the blessing was for him to die. Friends, doesn't that just melt your heart? Don't you want to fall on your knees and and we, we cry out? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Me who caused him pain? Me who to him death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But what we're learning in the covenant of grace is, no, it's not that he would die for you. It's that he had to die for you. This is what he bound himself. Back in Genesis 15, he says, I will die for you. I am making it so that there is no other way. What a God we have. What a Savior. Who would walk through death to ensure that a people from every language and tribe could be redeemed from their sin and live with him forever. That's what God promises. It's what he does to ensure the promise will come true. There's a third thing, though, that the Abrahamic covenant teaches us here as we close. Not only what God gives to us, not only what he does for us, but what he requires of us. And yes, there is a requirement. And that is faith. We need to believe that he will do it. Uh, According to Paul, as you read Paul, what what makes Abraham so important from a biblical perspective is that he's the man of faith. That's what Paul keeps coming back to time and again. Honing in especially on Abram's response in 15 verse 6, that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul picks that up in the New Testament. He basically says, everything you need to know today, so everybody pay attention. Everything you need to know today about how you can be blessed just like Abraham was blessed, it's right there. You just need to believe. It's all there. Look to Abraham and learn what you need to do to receive the blessings of the covenant. You just need to believe. Most critically, we find that in Romans 4. This will be our final text to turn to. As we're finishing up, Romans chapter 4. And we're really going to focus on verse 16, but I want to read the whole paragraph there because it's so rich. Romans 4. Paul says in verse 16, This is why it, that is the covenant of grace, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He's, he's faithful. Paul's highly. He's faithful. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Oh, that, that would be said of us. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it's counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, Paul is saying that the way that God worked in Genesis 15 is the way that God works, period. This is how he operates. The story is written for our benefit. If we believe the big promises of God, we will be justified as well. We will be pardoned and cleansed. We will be made right with God so that we could dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you believe that God raised a dead man to life? I mean, that's essentially what Abraham had to believe. He was as good as dead. And yet God brought life out of that situation. And so Paul says to us, uh, we must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Abraham believed that God could do such a thing. Do you believe it today? Friends, we cannot overstate the importance of faith. Again, verse 16 Paul says that the covenant of grace depends on faith. You, you can't experience it without faith. Why? Why is it so important? We could highlight three reasons. First, faith makes the covenant gracious. It makes the covenant gracious. The text says it is through faith so that it could be according to grace. If God required anything from us other than belief, um, then it would not be gracious. Uh, God requires only faith from us so that all the labor of the covenant could rest squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. Faith receives. John Stott says in Romans 4, the fixed point is that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone but in order that this might be so, our human response can only be faith. For grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace gives. So to ask why is faith so important in the covenant of grace, that's like asking why are hands necessary uh, to open up a Christmas gift. Faith is what opens up the gifts that God gives to us. So faith keeps the covenant gracious. Second, faith keeps the covenant Godward, God-focused. Because faith isn't just simply to look away from ourselves, but it's to look specifically to the God who makes the promise. Not to anybody else, not to anything else, not to any other idol. Faith is required when the promises are so big that only someone like God could make them. And so today you need to know what Abraham knew and what Abraham Believe that only God, only God could change him and change his circumstances. Only God could bring salvation and, and redemption to an otherwise dismal situation. Nobody else can do that for you today. 
Not your spouse. Quit looking to them to be your savior. Uh, Not your, your boss. Not your friends. Not your favorite political candidate. Only God. Only God. So Martin Luther says this, that we should consider that what the Lord promised Abraham here is altogether impossible. It's unbelievable and it's even untrue if you follow reason. Because it cannot be seen. He was old and Sarah was barren. How, I ask you, do these facts agree with the promise that says, I'll make of you a large nation? Where are the descendants to come from since Abraham's marriage is childless? Listen, this is what Luther says. These huge masses of unbelief and these high mountains, which could suppress his faith entirely, the holy patriarch overcomes and crosses by faith He simply clings to this one thought. Behold, God is promising it. That's what he clings to. And then Luther tells us, friends, he will not deceive you. Even though you do not see the way, the manner, or even the time of the fulfillment of this promise. He will not deceive you. Even though you do not see the way, the manner, or the time of the fulfillment of this promise. So faith makes the covenant gracious. It makes it Godward, God-focused. Finally, faith makes the covenant global. Look again at Romans 4.16. It says, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise would rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. What we're told here is that if the promise was exclusively based on on genealogy and ancestry, inevitably there would be people who were left out of the promise. That would give Abraham's line a reason to look down their noses at other people. But when the receiving of the promise is about faith, it opens it up to, well, to everybody. As we heard from Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male, female. You are all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter your background. If you believe, you're brought into this family. Faith makes the promise global. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Because anybody and everyone can believe. Boys and girls, even you at your young age can believe. That's actually not that remarkable. Children are always ready to believe more than those of us who are older and hardened and disillusioned. But yes, children can believe. Even skeptical young adults can believe. And even stubborn, lifelong doubters and deniers can believe. Since anyone can believe, that means the promise is open to anyone. And that means, friends, today, the promise is open to you. Do you have belief? Do you have faith? It depends on faith. God's promising that through simple faith in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son, you will be saved. He guarantees you a place in the new Jerusalem, in that sweet and better far-off country. 
He guarantees you a rescue from this wilderness of woe. He has sworn to it, in fact. He doesn't just promise it. He says, no, I swear. I swear. And he will not deceive you, even though you do not see the way or the manner or even the time of the fulfillment of this promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us. Thank you how we begin to understand more of of what you're doing in the covenant of grace as we look to the story of Abraham. Would we indeed be children of Abraham through faith? Give us that faith. It can only come from you as a gift. Change our hearts to believe the big promises that you make. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.